Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 250. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we're doing a couple of Don Siegel movies from the 1950s. The first one is the classic Ride in Cell Block 11 starring Leo Gordon and Neville Brand. And then we move on to 1959 for a small but interesting cinema colour, the Don Siegel movie, Edge of Eternity, starring Cornell Wilde and Mickey Shaughnessy. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciations. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and it's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so the podcast is back. Um, As some of you might know, on the 6th of February, my mother died in Sydney, and we kind of had to deal with that, and it's, you know, as this kind of thing happens, it does knock you out of reality or out of your previous reality in a lot of ways for a while so that's why it's been a while for the podcast um sally and i drove up there overnight the day we heard and by the way i've got to thank friend of the podcast morris because i was waiting for morris we're going to have lunch and have a coffee uh in the middle of melbourne when i got the phone call from my sister linda that mum had died and so poor morris turns up he's about to have coffee with me and i've got to tell him that my mum died he was crazily sympathetic so a lot of love to morris there uh, he was the first person I told that my mother had died because it took me not, uh, about 100 minutes to find Sally because she was in town having lunch with a girlfriend of hers and um, they said they were going to a certain uh, restaurant but it was full so they went somewhere else. So I spent 100 minutes wandering around Chinatown in, in Melbourne trying to find her uh, but it all turned out as well as it did. Um, we went up to Sydney. We spent 10 days up there supporting the family and getting their support as well. And thanks as well to Sal for her uh, help there. I put together a video tribute to Mum, which is up on my YouTube channel, if people are interested interested in looking at that. And I did part of the eulogy. Then we had a seven-hour wake at the Maroubra Seals Club on a balcony overlooking the ocean, which was very, very nice. And that was a nice way of honouring her. Um, As you know from previous podcasts, with her dementia, she'd been very unwell for a long time and we were kind of expecting this to happen. But it's still a profound change in reality when it does. But for the most part, in a sense, the whole going up to Sydney and seeing her off kind of thing was a good thing. It was a positive thing and it was almost an adventure in a weird way because I'm closer to my sister and my brother-in-law and my nephew than I ever was. I reconnected with three of my nieces who came down from Brisbane for the funeral. And they're all wonderful people, uh, my three nieces. They're all adults. Um, Tams and Jess and Lizzie were a lot of fun to hang out with. Uh, we went downstairs and had coffee in a, ca- coffee in a cafe. And, um, yeah, it went well. I did have, I think, three gin and tonics, but it was gin and tonic weather, so it wasn't a bad thing. A good send-off for her. It really did honour her. Um, as we all know in this podcast, I don't have any supernatural beliefs, so there's nothing there to comfort me. The comfort I got was I did my duty as a son. I supported the people I love. I supported my mother and her memory. And... Those final memories were good. Oh, by the way, my sister Sandy was there too and we kind of hung out for a while as well. But um, unfortunately, my brother was not available to attend and he sent some quite rude Facebook messages to me, so I've blocked him. But we actually did some good things in Sydney as well. I saw a movie, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. It's not one of the two movies we're going to do for the podcast, but I'm going to talk about it and what I've been watching. 
Um, we took my nephew Billy to the zoo and did a YouTube video for Sally's channel with that. And the weather was warm and sunny, a little bit humid, but had this happened in a cold, bleak winter, I think it would have been a lot worse in a lot of ways. But, you know, we, we did everything right at the service, and that was kind of a new experience for me, one I don't want to repeat any time ever. And the other thing I, I take away from all this is that I'm not, a fan of open coffin viewings. The person in the the body in the box is not the person. The person was all of that crazy electricity and chemistry in the brain, the lifetime of memories, which of course mums were faded. But that piece of chilled meat in the box is not the person you loved. That's just what they wore and what hosted their software in a sense. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that ever again for anybody. I'm not going to any viewings because I find it distressing and of absolutely no comfort to me. By the way, thank you to everybody who reached out and gave me their condolences. It meant a lot to me, and I really appreciated it. Uh, the love I got was... I, I never expected because due to my background, I don't expect approval or praise or sympathy or anything like that. But when it comes... It's always, A, surprising, and B, it makes me feel really honoured when it happens. And that's about all I want to say about February this year for me. Um, April is Japan. We plan to have a great time there, and I'm looking forward to the future. So what have I been watching? And by the way, I am still doing the 15-minute rule. After 15 minutes, I've got to start talking about the two movies the podcast is about. Um, not a lot of movies. I did see The Umbrella Academy. I watched the first season of that and enjoyed it. I've been enjoying season two of Star Trek Disco, which has come back on as well. So that's been a lot of fun. Saw the um, pilot episode for the Doom Patrol TV series based on the DC comics. And I recommend it. I'm not going to give you too many spoilers on that. But if you haven't seen the pilot, definitely do so. It's worth your time and it's quirky and um, its own world enough that I think it's going to do well if it's given the opportunity. Apart from that, when I was in Sydney over Chinese New Year, I went to the event cinemas in George Street in Sydney and saw a Chinese film, The Wandering Earth, which is a big budget science fiction epic that was released by Tangren Film Group into foreign markets from China to cater to the audience who were of the Chinese diaspora. So there were subtitles in English, a little bit of English dialogue, but most of it was in um, Mandarin, I assume. <laughs> Not entirely sure. But it's a big budget science fiction epic. Um, it's in a story by one of their best science fiction writers, Liu Cixin. And um, basically the story is this. The sun is swelling up, it's dying and turning into a red giant. And Earth is heating up. So all the governments on Earth drop their bullshit and decide they're going to move Earth to Alpha Centauri by putting 1,000 enormous boosters around the equator of the Earth and on the rear end of it, they stop the rotation of the whole planet and they move it out of the solar system. Now, to do that, they've got to sling past the sun and then sling past the planet Jupiter. And the journey is going to take 2,500 years. So enormous underground cities are built because things are going to get cold. And then just as the planet is doing the slingshot around Jupiter, some of the engines break down and Earth is on a collision course with Jupiter. And people have got to find a way to stop that from happening. This is a blockbuster. This makes Armageddon look like a fight in the kindergarten. It really does uh, do things marvellously. There's a beautiful sense of escalation in the threat. I mean, the first five minutes is, you know, we've got to move the Earth or the human race is dead. And then it gets escalated from there. So it's pretty spectacular stuff. The special effects are on point. Weta Workshop in New Zealand helped out with the effects. Um, they did it all on a $50 million US budget, which goes further in China. But it looks spectacular. Uh, there are some really beautiful scenes in it. And it's uh, been picked up by Netflix. 
So if you get a chance to see The Wandering Earth, go see it because, or have it come to you, of course, because it is the best science fiction movie I've seen in a year or two, at least. Uh, then I went and saw Alita Battle Angel, Robert Rodriguez movie uh, produced by James Cameron, starring Rosa Salazar and Christoph Waltz, and based, of course, on the anime and the manga, and I liked it. The big-eyed Alita, played by Rosa Salazar with a bit of mocap, didn't worry me. It didn't do uncanny valley things to me. The action is on point. It really does work. The characters are sympathetic, and the world it creates is kind of cyberpunky updated. But for me, it worked. Pretty good supporting cast, with Mahershala Ali playing the main villain that we see, though there is a villain above him whom we see briefly in a kind of teaser for our possible sequel. Uh, by the way, he just won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in Green Book, which is very controversial, but not because of his acting. Uh, yeah, it's worth checking out if you get a chance to. I really did have a lot of fun with that one as a pure action film. Then I saw The Girl in the Spider's Web, which is the sequel, of course, to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, I much prefer the Numira Pace ones to the more recent ones. Claire Foy plays Elizabeth Solander in this one. I think Numi Rapace is much better than either Rooney Mara or Claire Foy playing Solander. But um, it's a good action film in that. Apart from that, it works well. There's a lot of hacking. There's a lot of action stuff. Uh, there are a few family beats in this one, which don't really bring anything new to the franchise particularly. But I kind of like the fact that there's a... Um, a potential action film franchise out there with a female lead set in the real world, more or less, and also set in a non-Anglophone world, even if the dialogue is all in English. So, yeah, it's okay. Tomorrow morning I am watching The Favourite, which is the movie Olivia Colman won the Best Actress Oscar for yesterday, and I'm looking forward to seeing that because I like Olivia Colman and I really liked her Oscar speech. Um, as usual, there were controversies with the Oscars but there inevitably are it's like the Academy Awards were designed for social media as something to trigger the gathering at the waterhole and the predators attacking the prey and the prey attacking the predators um, as I said on social media expecting the movies you want to win the Oscars to win the Oscars is a bit like expecting your pimp to remember your birthday you can hope, but it's not likely to happen. Nonetheless, it's a bit of a celebration of hyperbole and frocks and controversy and films and Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. By the way, um, the other thing kind of sort of related to that is that I did an in-memoriam in early December last year on the YouTube channel in the manner of the in-memoriam uh, thing that happens at the Oscars. And it's the most viewed of my face of my YouTube posts. It's copped about four thousand views, which is a, not a lot in the scale of Casey Neistat or PewDiePie or anybody like that. But for me, it was a hell of a bump. I got a sudden kind of upsurge in that. So I'm going to do it again this year. I'm going to do a cinema in memoriam, and I think I'll do a TV one as well, because uh, a lot of people were complaining that certain TV actors didn't get mentioned in the Oscars in memoriam. So I'm going to do this epic thing around December and put together an in memoriam for, you know, it's going to be a long video, but just to kind of show that Hollywood doesn't get it right and that somebody else can come in and do their own and, and make it, I hope, more inclusive. So I'm going to be doing that in December. That's my big December project this year. I probably should start gathering names now, but I can... Uh, backfill that with wikipedia so we're almost on the 15 minute mark um as i said thank you to everyone for the support and thank you for your patience uh in the three and a half week break in the podcast but uh we're back on track now i'm going to be podcasting from japan in april which is going to be a mind fuck a true and wonderful mind fuck but um the future is looking bright Anyway, here is the trailer for Don Siegel's classic low-budget black-and-white movie, 
Ride in Cell Block 11 from 1954. Cell block 11. All right, quiet down. We'll figure out what we want, and if they don't give it to us, we'll make them a present of one dead guard. Or maybe four. Here it is, ripped from the blistering facts of prison riots that have stunned the nation. Riot in cell block 11. The true shocking story of terror behind the wall. Roberts, you can get death in this state for leading a riot. You terrific. Warden, these men mean to kill us. Unless you release those guards, I'll see that every one of you hanged. Haskell, get away. terrifying spectacle of stir-crazy convicts whose pent-up lust for vengeance crashes all restraint. Hardened criminals in a frenzied battle for power. Suppose we blast a hole in the block. Only inmates get killed. Okay, right in cell block 11. Now, I've got to thank my good friend Jamie Royal for this movie, not because he gave me this movie to watch for the podcast, but because back in the day, in the dim, dark past when dinosaurs ruled the earth, Jamie sold me for five bucks a VHS copy of this movie. And I watched it and went, fuck, this is good. And he went, yes, it is. And the cast is mind-blowing from a viewpoint of people who like character actors. Let's just go through some of them. I'll, I'll talk about what the movie's about, though the title does tend to indicate the sort of movie it is. Um, you've got Neville Brand playing James V. Dunn. Neville Brand was one of the most decorated soldiers in World War II and turned that into a career as an actor, much in the same way, but with, I think, more success than Audie Murphy. Yes, Audie Murphy did a lot of movies in the 50s, but Neville Brand then went on to be a character actor. He did a TV series called Laredo in the 1960s. And um, I think I like him more than I ever liked Audie Murphy as a as a persona on the screen, let's say. Then we've got the character actor Emil Meyer playing the warden. And I like the fact that um, Don Siegel picked a warden who looked tough. And the interesting thing about Emil Meyer's character, Warden Reynolds, is he's tough, but he's fair, and he's a diplomat as much as he's a disciplinarian. Really complex character, if you look into it in this movie. And I appreciate that complexity, because it does really help with the narrative. And Neville Brand's character, James Dunn, as well, he's not particularly an educated man, but he's a leader, he's an intelligent person, and he's um, tough, but not a fucking nutcase. The way one of the other characters in there, Crazy Mike Carney, played by the great character actor and writer of screenplays, Leo Gordon is. Now, Leo Gordon, I like, um, he wrote some of the Roger Corman's movies in the early 60s, and his daughter keeps a Facebook page for him, and apparently he was a lovely guy, had some um, criminal problems early in his life and went to jail for a time but then fixed himself up and really did become a worthwhile member of um, the Hollywood acting community, in a sense. So I like Leo Gordon for a lot of those reasons. Frank Phelan plays Commissioner Haskell, a politician who basically almost fucks up the negotiations with the rioting prisoners. In their Frank Phelan, people might remember, and I remember this, for some odd reasons, was the father of Dobie Gillis in the TV series The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis 
back in the day. Character actor way back into the 30s and 40s as well. Um, the reason I remember him from Debbie Gillis, apart from the fact that I watched it when I was a very small child, is Dwayne Hickman, the guy that played Debbie Gillis in the TV series. I just friended him up on Facebook, and he's putting together some interesting content on that platform. I always like people I used to watch when I was a kid who have Facebook pages, and you can get a little fanboy about that, but uh, Frank Phelan, good character actor. He he had a lot of nuance to him, and he could play a bunch of different types, which was always a bit of a virtue in character actors. Uh, I liked him in there. Paul Freese, the great voiceover artist who did a lot of the voiceovers for Disney, is in there as one of the prison guards. Don't like Paul Freese as much, because Paul Freese, and not many people know this, was an FBI informant who dobbed people in for communist leanings um, back in the um, House on American Activities Red Scare days. So, fuck Paul Freese. Uh, let's see who else we've got in there. Alvy Moore, who people might remember from Green Acres, is in there. Dabs Greer, another good character actor. Dabs Greer was in The Green Mile. He played the older version of Tom Hanks' character in The Green Mile, not too long before he died. So he's in there um, playing one of the prisoners. Whit Bissell plays one of the um, prison guards as well. Whit Bissell we know from a whole bunch of 1950s um, kind of schlocky drive-in type horror movies. Plus he was... um, one of the people back home in the old TV series, The Time Tunnel. Um, William Shallot is in there playing a reporter. Uh, you see all these faces of, of actors and character actors. And yes, it is a sausage party because of the nature of the kind of film it is. Uh, there aren't really any women characters of any agency in this film. But it's really um, interesting to see familiar faces in there. Now, I'll give you a bit of a background about the movie as well because there's some interesting stuff there. Producer Walter Wanger served four months prison term for shooting Jennings Lang, an agent who he thought was having an affair with uh, Walt Wanger's wife, the actress Joan Bennett. So he went to prison, served four months, and this is from IMDb. The experiences he had in prison so unnerved him that upon his release he resolved to make a film about what prisons were really like not the typical Hollywood prison film made by people who had never been anywhere near a prison or had never had any experience with the judicial system. Uh, They shot the film at California's Folsom Prison and used both guards and inmates as extras and technical advisors, which was really an interesting departure there. They could get away with this because it was a fairly low-budget film and Don Siegel at the time was a low-budget director, so... It's kind of the thing it reminds me of, and there are a certain type of movies at this time that remind me of this is. Um, I've spoken before on the podcast about how Barbetica's renowned westerns with Randolph Scott are like a distilled essence of the western. They've got everything you need in a western, but kind of rendered down to a pure essence. And in a way, Right in Cell Block 11 is a distilled pure essence of a good prison film. It's tight, it's not on a big scale, and it uses locations really, really well. In this case, Folsom Prison. Um, One of the interesting things, according to IMDb, and I'm taking this with a grain of salt, but it sounds a bit right, there was a production assistant on this film, a guy called Sam Peckinpah, whose father, Denver Peckinpah, was a law and order judge in Northern California. And because Peckinpah was involved in the production, they got the warden to allow filming at Folsom Prison. I mean, that sounds good. Whether it's actually accurate or not, I don't know. But I'm just going um, off what we've got here. Filmed the whole lot in 16 days, which is pretty fucking spectacular. Particularly given um, that they had a lot of crowd scenes in there. There were prisoners in crowd scenes. There were wardens and guards in crowd scenes. Filming it in 16 days, possibly with no second unit. It would have been a Herculean effort. At one stage early in production, they were looking at getting Glenn Ford or Van Heflin to be in the movie as well. Both of them, of course, are great character actors in their own rights. But um, I think maybe the budget wasn't there to get people with that name prominence. So Neville Brand and Leo Gordon and Frank Fallon, all those kind of jobbing actors. And that's my favourite term, of course, jobbing actor. 
um, were part of it. Now, we're going to get Nicholas Ray to direct the film at one stage. I suppose that might have been, again, when the uh, budget was high because Nick Ray already had a fair bit of prominence with a couple of earlier films, most notably, of course, In a Lonely Place with uh, Bogart and uh, Gloria Graham. This was 1954, and I think, that, yeah, that's the same year as um, Nick Ray was making Johnny Guitar, so I think he made the good decision to make Johnny Guitar, at least from a Hollywood career standpoint, than making right and sell Block 11. Okay, so I'm 10 minutes into this, and I haven't given you a synopsis yet. Um, let's have a look. I'll grab the one from IMDMB. Fed up with the inhumane prison living conditions, a general prison riot breaks out, leading to hostage taking a standoff with the guards and eventual negotiations with the prison administration officials. That's pretty much it. Um, the There's really interesting little bits where the way in which the prisoners escape is very different than it will be these days. I mean, with the kind of security we have now in prisons, none of this could have happened, but it was simpler times. The technology was fairly rudimentary. Yes, they did have electronically locking doors on the cells and things like that but again a little bit of social engineering um, enabled the prisons prisoners to escape you know playing with the minds of a, a new prison guard and uh, playing on his sympathies was what let them out which is kind of interesting uh let me have a look here i've got a lot of notes on this i watched this a couple of weeks ago so please bear with me um there's a lot of really interesting stuff about government responsibility in providing humane situations for prisoners. And the list of demands that the prisoners have, nobody's asking you to get out of prison, but the list of demands is, is by modern standards, pretty reasonable. Separate the young prisoners from the predatory rapey prisoners with overcrowding issues, and also at one stage get the criminally insane people like uh, Mad Mike Carney into um, mental health hospitals rather than into prisons. Don't mix prisoners with people with extreme, violent, psychotic mental illnesses because it's not going to end well. So everything that's being said from the prisoner's point of view is eminently reasonable. Um, it may cost some money because, of course, they've got to expand the prison out because of the overcrowding. But ultimately, it's a reasonable um, lot of requests. And the lovely thing I like about this is a Neville Brand this has got to be Neville Brand's best role in a movie, unquestionably. His character's intelligent and passionate. He's got a family outside of prison. He's the kind of role Neville Brand didn't get to play again because he was kind of stereotyped because of his kind of rough appearance and gravelly voice and things like that. He was stereotyped as a heavy or in various stages like in the TV series Laredo as comic relief almost. But in this one, he really does work and in another time and say another kind of Hollywood just say he was well for example if Neville Brown was like a 30 year old actor now he'd be getting roles like the Punisher and, and things like that he has the chops for that but um in this one I think he definitely shines and the supporting cast is, around him is great I really do have a lot of time for Emile Myers Warden he's a man of honor but tough He's got a shit job and, and being a warden with the political machinations on one side and an overcrowded prison on the other, he doesn't have an enviable um, job, let's say. And so rather than being the father figure you see in a lot of other prison movies of that type or the harsh disciplinarian you might see in other ones, in this one he's a combination. He's a complex character. He's hard when he needs to be an authoritarian. But he's not without compassion, he's intelligence, he's a negotiator. He really does um, have a number of different roles in his job. And we get the chance to see Warden Reynolds doing those things. And Leo Gordon, um, there was a problem with Leo Gordon being a part of the film and filming in Folsom Prison because he'd been in San Quentin for five years for armed robbery in the past. Um, the warden at Folsom Prison objected to Leo Gordon being in the film but uh, Don Seale convinced him that um, Leo Gordon wasn't any threat to the prison. He'd reformed himself. He was a regarded, well-regarded actor. And so they let Leo Gordon be part of the film. The movie was also banned in the UK, which is really odd. And if it was banned in the UK, there's a chance it may have been banned here in Australia. I'm not too sure. 
That's the kind of dumb shit that happened in this country in the early 1950s, uh, where all horror movies were banned, for instance, because they might upset people. You know, people, the same people at the time who had less than a decade before lived through a planetary war, those people would have been scared by horror movies. So Australia, in its um, folly, banned horror movies up until the 1960s. The other thing this movie has, which is really nice, is a sense of escalation. You've got the initial breakout, you've got the riot, you've got the standoff between the guards and the um, state police and the local militias or whatever, and the prisoners. You've got the tentative negotiations and the building of trust there. Then there's a dumb idea as the politicians take over when there's one act of violence and Commissioner Haskell gets injured by one of the inmates. They decide that what they're going to do is blast through the wall of the prison and get into cell block 11 and arrest the prisoners that way. And to do that, they've got to kind of punch holes in the wall and plant dynamite. But what they don't know is the prisoners can hear them kind of hammering at the walls. And so the prisoners who, against the wishes of um, Dunn, the Neville Brand character, tie the prison wardens, uh, the prison guards they've got as hostages to that wall so that if they blast the wall, they're going to kill their own people. So there's a nice sense of escalation of, of threat. Uh, there are bits where you hope things are going to go really nicely and then they back off from that as an escalation occurs the politics of this is really interesting and the um, fact that people on the ground, the, the warden and the and the prison guards and all of those people have one viewpoint, but the political um, grey eminences, the um, numbers men and the spin doctors and that have another one. And then, of course, you've got the journalists involved and the journalists want to get the story, but Again, they're getting mostly one viewpoint, which is the viewpoint of the authorities, and only in tiny little bite-sized chunks. As negotiations take place, are they getting the viewpoint of the prisoners? So there's that kind of complexity going on there as well. And this is the kind of in-depth stuff that they probably got from Walt Wanger's um, experience of spending the time in prison. And, of course, they may well have tapped into Leo Gordon as well, who would have been able to help them. Plus they had all these extras who were prison guards and prisoners themselves. So they had enormous resources to get it right when they were making this film. And it shows on the screens, on the screen. It really does give you a sense that this is an actual place and these are actual people in this actual circumstance. So there's an almost documentary feel about some of it because of that location shooting. Because they shot in cells, there's a scene where somebody gets cold cocked. And for the first time I can recall in a Hollywood film, this is the earliest point at which you get to see a toilet bowl because the cell had a toilet bowl in it and as the person falls over, you can see the dunny. So there's that, there's that kind of oblique mentioning it of um, prisoners raping other prisoners. It's only mentioned obliquely, but it's fairly obvious what they mean by what they're saying in the, in the film. So there is a kind of grown-upness about this film, which a lot of movies of the time didn't have. Again, the production code was there. And, uh, it wasn't called the Hayes Office at this time. It was called the production code. So there were strict, rather draconian limitations on what they could and couldn't say and what they could and couldn't show. But in spite of that, this film holds up tremendously well from our viewpoint as a kind of almost documentary thriller and is really much superior to any prison film I can recall that happened beforehand, except maybe I was a prisoner on a chain gang or one of those kind of things. And uh, maybe the chain gang and, and kind of prison camp scenes in a movie like Sullivan's Travels, which have a depth and a humanity about them, that really does make the idea that people in prison are human beings and not just kind of evil monsters. That, that kind of humanization of incarcerated human beings and caged from the other sort of point of view, caged the movie with uh, Eleanor Parker in it. Uh, 
again shows that other side of things. And they were starting to do some very gritty kind of social observations about um, criminality and the complexity of that part of human endeavour that really didn't happen beforehand. And it's um, to the credit of the people who push things that that occurred in movies like um, Riot and Cell Block 11. Now, there's a downbeat ending to this movie. I'm not going to pretend there isn't. And it's not the kind of downbeat ending you might have got, say, in a 1940 Warner Brothers movie. This one was made by Allied Artists, a smaller studio, and the budget was only like $296,000 or something like that. It made a lot of money. It made well over a million bucks in the box office in 1954. And so a Warner Brothers movie in the 1940s, um, the main negotiator, the James Dunn character played by Neville Brand, probably would have got shot in, a, in an accident, accidental kind of not deliberate way and there would have been sadness about that and there would have been people on both sides honouring him. But that's not what happens in this film. This film has a real politic kind of ending to it which really does still retain a gut-punch feel about it to this day. It does definitely have an impact and we can understand how it comes about, but we can also understand the injustice of it and the cruelty of it and the fact that they're playing to the bleachers rather than dealing with the issues as they are right there. I'm going to say what that ending is. You can look it up on Wikipedia if you like, but see the movie instead because I'd forgotten about it. I hadn't seen the movie for maybe 10 or 15 years. And I've forgotten about the downbeat ending in this film. And I felt the kind of first-time impact of it by re-watching it and having forgotten the ending. And it's the right ending to have. There's there's no kind of, you know, fucked-upness about the ending. It's definitely the right ending for this film. And it's totally in the same tone as the rest of the movie. There isn't that kind of redemption or choirs of angels as the camera pans up to a cloud with the sun bursting through it or any of that kind of bullshit this is a hard uncompromising movie and that's the reason why it got a criterion edition and i love the fact that it did i love the fact that we can get a decent copy of it we can get some of the extras and we can get um a, a really again recognition of this film because with so many movies coming out all the time it's easy to forget the small but important films that we have, like Right and Cell Block 11. And again, it is, it is an important film. It's, um, it's the kind of movie that they should, and probably do in a lot of cases, show film students. Because it, you know, 16 days is a, a hell of a short shoot. I mean, there are television commercials that take that long these days. But 16 days for this kind of a production uh, in a shooting schedule is pretty impressive. Siegel's direction is fantastic. He, in kind of limited, there are limited things you can do in a prison and in a prison yard and things like that. There are only a certain number of angles you can get and a certain number of viewpoints, and you've got to find the right angle and the right um, way of shooting particular things depending on whose viewpoint it is, whether it's from the guards on top of the wall whether it's from down among the riding prisoners as they fight with the um, with the prison guards or in cells. There are, there are some very tight shots in cells, which are done very well, or in the gallery between cells. Um, there's never a dull shot in this movie. Every one of them uses the sometimes cramped and limited and quite bland um, walls of the prison to good effect. Um, one of the things that we notice is a lot of the signage around the prisons, which is authentic signage from Folsom Prison. It gives us the authoritarian aspects of it. Uh, we see a couple of scenes inside um, the officers of the prison guards and the things that they have to do and the signs on their walls. We also see the signs in the public areas and at the commissary for the prison. So there is that kind of mise-en-scene and I know how to use that word correctly, that gives us a verisimilitude to it all and really makes it have that documentary 
wonderfulness that we get from this film. It's um, it's a great film to revisit if you have if you've seen it before, and if you haven't seen it before, definitely do so. It's solid and it's tough and it's uncompromising. It's only eighty minutes long, so it's not a particularly long film, but every minute of it matters, and the acting roles are perfectly well done. There's nothing there that's um, going to make you giggle uncomfortably because of a bad acting bit. And uh, Siegel's ability to get the shots he needed and to tell his story in, in such a way in 16 days of shooting is incredibly impressive. So see this film definitely. So I'm going to take a break now. When I get back, we're going to talk about another Siegel drama, but on a much larger canvas. The 1959 Cinemascope movie, Edge of Eternity, starring Cornell Wilde, Victoria Shaw, and Mickey Shaughnessy. Yeah, I think it's time for some music. We need some music in the podcast. So just give me a moment and I'll find something. Yeah, this one will do. I've been kind of going through some weird musical bits at the moment. Um, not in a bad way at all. Uh, this one is actually called the, it's called Pink Balloon by Horst Jankowski. And it's kind of Europop 1960s, 1970s stuff with a bit of vocals in the background, but they're all not singing lyrics as much as being another one of the instruments. And for me, it kind of typifies an era in pop culture where I was watching ITC TV shows like The Protectors and Jason King and Department S. It's very much got that kind of a feel to it. So here is Pink Balloon by Horst Jankowski and the Jankowski Singers. do love 70s Europop. So, Edge of Eternity. I wasn't able to get a trailer for Edge of Eternity. For some reason, there's not one available in the usual sources. But I like this film. It's, um, it's got Cornell Wilde in it for a start, and I like Cornell Wilde ever since I first saw The Naked Prey in the cinema when I was a kid. 
And if you haven't seen The Naked Prey, you should really see it because it's one of the great survival movies of all time. Filmed in Africa, um, it's got King Gampu in it as one of the people pursuing the character played by Cornel Wilde. I could go on endlessly about The Naked Prey. I've actually got a couple of um, lobby cards from it and a poster because I like the movie that much. But yeah, I like Cornel Wilde a lot of things. He used to do swashbuckling movies. Uh, Hungarian origin he was, but... Uh, had a, a good career in Hollywood, made No Blade of Grass, an adaptation of John Christopher's novel in the 1970s. And he did it, an Arabian Nights fantasy film, of which I'm very fond, called A Thousand and One Nights, which also stars Evelyn Ankers and Phil Silvers. I really like that one as well. But in Edge of Night, uh, which was filmed in Eastman Colour in Cinemascope in 1959, shot on location again, which is uh, one of Don Siegel's trademarks almost. Uh, the film starts really interestingly too. There's a man who's parked his car on the edge of a lookout over the Grand Canyon and he's looking at something with binoculars and uh, someone tries to kill him by pushing his car over him. Um, you know, releases the emergency brake and pushes the car. The man gets struck by the car but doesn't die. And he grabs his attacker's foot and pushes him over the edge. The man is seen wandering back towards civilization on foot and doesn't play too much of a role in the further film. We then see a deputy sheriff, uh, Les Martin, played by Cornell Wilde, who's chasing a speeding car, which is being driven down one of the desert roads near um, the Grand Canyon by rich heiress Janice Kendon, played by Victoria Shaw. Victoria Shaw was actually Australian. Uh, she, If you remember the person who played the Queen in Westworld, in the medieval world, that was Victoria Shaw. Her actual name was Jeanette Elphick, and she was born in Sydney. And she stay out, started in a very early Chips Rafferty movie from 1953 called The Phantom Stockman, of which I have a very bad VHS dub, but... It may well be, apart from that, a lost film. It's actually got a time code on it, the copy I've got. But uh, Bob Hope was in Australia and signed her up for a contract in Hollywood. She was in against, she played against Tyrone Power in the Eddie Duchin story. Uh, she was in The Crimson Kimono. And Alvarez Kelly with uh, William Holden. And, of course, Westworld. And then she went on to do some episodic television, including General Hospital. Charlie's Angels, Ironside, things like that. She was really beautiful and a pretty good actor too. And in this one, she she's kind of nice playing against Connor. While well, they've got a, a reasonable chemistry there and they um, do seem to be having fun with the acting a little bit as they do the meet cute and get involved in a plot to smuggle gold to Mexico out of a mine near the Grand Canyon. And it's a real mine too. It used to exist there, but it wasn't a gold mine. Um, it's actually called the Bat Cave Mine, uh, which is uh, on the western part of the Grand Canyon uh, above Lake Mead. And there's a few interesting things about it. The first one is there's an aerial tramway that leads to the mine. Basically, a tram car goes along a cable to haul the mine's um, products across the Grand Canyon at a great height out of a hole in the side of the cliff to a place where they can be loaded onto trucks and hauled away. Now, it's not an active mine. It used to be an active mine up until the 1960s, but it wasn't a gold mine the way it is in Edge of Eternity. It was actually a guano mine. So basically what they were mining at Bat Cave Mine in Arizona was batshit deep in the caves in the cliff were thousands and thousands of years of accumulated batshit which makes really good fertilizer and so they built this wonderful tramway which was about 2.3 kilometers long and um, went all the way across uh, transporting 1,100 kilos of guano at a time that's pretty spectacular. They had a car. The car also um, transported miners to and from work. There were two platforms, one at either end of the um, car, where the miners could go to and from. And we actually see that used 
in the movie where there is a fight on this elevated tram um, cable car thing above the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. And there's some lovely stunt work in there. Of course, it's not the actors. They used reprojection and a fake um, tram car to do the bits with Cornell Wilde and the other actor, and I'm not going to spoil who that is. But um, there is some really nice stunt work of a couple of stuntmen fighting on this crazy contraption sitting over the Grand Canyon, which is probably the reason the movie was made, because the visuals of that, particularly in Cinemascope and Eastman Colour, are really spectacular. That's the whole selling point of the movie. Well, the supporting cast is pretty good. We've got um, Mickey Shaughnessy playing the owner of a bar where Cornell Wilde's character frequents. You have Edgar Buchanan playing the local sheriff. Uh, people remember Edgar Buchanan because he was Uncle Joe in Petticoat Junction on TV in the 1960s. And this is a bit before that. And he's quite good as a sheriff. He's kind of got the um, smarts to do his job well. Uh, he trusts his deputy's judgment in a lot of things. And I kind of liked the character. It really did work. We also get uh, Jack Elam turning up in an early role as well as somebody running part of one of the mines. And we get from right in cell block 11, Dabs Greer again turning up as another character because uh, Don Siegel liked working with him. Now, the movie goes along at a good pace. It, it, um, there's some really nice uh, aeroplane and helicopter shots in the film that work really well. Uh, I was watching them, I thought, geez, what they could have done with a gimbal or a steady cam um, would have been spectacularly better. But given the fact that they were working with those enormous 1950s cameras um, hanging out of the side of uh, aircraft, I think they did a pretty good job of, particularly there's a scene of a helicopter and light plane pursuit. Um, down the Grand Canyon, which works really well. As well as those really great 1950s car chases where all of the cars look basically like um, billiard tables on four wheels and uh, manoeuvre really heavily. You can tell them just made out of steel. There's no light body work on these things. And watching them rip around uh, dirt roads, on windy dirt roads on, around the Grand Canyon is always a lot of fun. There's a lot of dust kicked up. And that kind of heaviness of the cars makes it seem really treacherous for the actors and, and of course, the stunt drivers to tear these cars around. There's no undercranking that I could notice in the car chasings. Dunn Siegel played them in real time, and they looked really good. You can always tell when it's dusty, when they undercrank the camera to make it look like cars are travelling faster because the dust dissipates unrealistically quickly. And in this movie, I couldn't detect any of that. The movie also plays pretty well as a mystery as well. You've got to find out who the person was that tried to run over the guy at the start of the film. You've got to find out what they want and what they're doing and how. And so as a kind of a, a police procedural on a really cinematic and large background, it kind of works in the same way that a lot of the really good pulp paperback novels of the 1950s work, where they, um, they have a decent location, uh, you get some interesting characters. Of course, two of the characters are going to fall in love. You see some supportive characters around them. Um, one of them, at least, has a bit of an unfortunate background in his previous life. Um, that being, of course, Cornell Wilde character. So you've got all of those things which can play out like a cliche if you're familiar with uh, the era of films or even the pulp novels of the time. But a couple of things bring it out of there. Um, Victoria Shaw's very good. The supporting cast is excellent. Cornell Wilde is really good. Even though he was always a little bit of a stiff actor, I liked him in this film because I, I kind of liked the character arc for his character and the way that um, Don Siegel uses the slight stiffness of Cornell Wilde as an actor to show that the character is very much a man who's locked into his duty as a deputy sheriff. And so they turn that kind of, what could be perceived as a weakness of the actor, into a much stronger role in the context of a particular film. I don't know what was actually working under a handicap in this film as well. He was had surgery on his eye for a detached retina, and he was recovering during filming, so 
he had a bit of trouble seeing, and, and even though he did most of his own stunts, with the one exception being the thing with the cable car in the middle of the um, Grand Canyon, he had not insignificant visual problems while making the movie. But for me, this movie was really a satisfying action flick of the time. It looked good on the big screen at home. Um, it's not the sort of movie you're going to get a 4K reconstruction on for a Blu-ray release with tons of commentary or anything like that. It's very much a B-action film, but it's an honest one, and it kind of works in that way. Uh, I was looking through Don Siegel's filmography as well while I was researching these films, and there's one movie I really want to get a copy of that I can't find anywhere. So I'm going to do a shout-out about this. It was a Spanish-American co-production called Spanish Affair. It's made in 1957, and starred Richard Kiley and Carmen Sevilla. Um, and I saw it lots and lots and lots of years ago. And I liked it. I, it kind of had a, a slight travelogy feel about it. And But it worked for me, and I really wouldn't mind finding a copy of that. So um, if you Google Spanish Affair, you're probably going to find a whole bunch of porn. But if anybody knows where I can find a copy of the movie from 1957, uh, it really is an interesting one and um don siegel i always found an interesting director and i like richard kiley as an actor so if anybody can kind of steer me in a direction of even a slightly subterranean copy of it and i've tried the usual sources like ebay and cinema and all that and i wasn't able to find anything so if you can steer me a copy of spanish affair from 1957 you'd be doing me a solid by the way if you don't know who richard kiley was Apart from doing the musical version of um, The Little Prince, the one Gene Wilder and Bob Fosse were in, he was also the guy who shot Thelma Ritter to death in Pickup on South Street, which enables me to segue to the fact that I've just done a video about Thelma Ritter and her six Academy Award nominations without actually getting an award. It's up on the YouTube channel, so if you go to youtube.com slash the letter C slash Terry Frost, you can find it there, and I'm quite proud of this one. It, it kind of flows well. I'm slowly learning how to do those better, and I want to do more stuff about the history of cinema. And the nice thing about this one was I didn't get a copyright strike against me. Um, I'm not sure if I've, if I've explained copyright strikes. Copyright strikes are where some algorithm or bot or some minion at a movie studio takes a look at your YouTube video and decides rather arbitrarily that you breach copyright, even though there is uh, fair use. It's a very hard one to fight, particularly for smaller YouTube channels. And so you can protest it. Protest it. I protested one because I used something from a public domain movie in one of my YouTube videos, and I got um, they backed off on that one because it was a small company just trying to ambulance chase their way into getting something out of me. And I pointed out that the movie was on archive.org and it was in the public domain and sent them a few links um, through the Amazon link that I had, uh, sorry, through the YouTube link that I had. And I was successful with that one. So you can have wins in these things. But when I'm making movie videos, and particularly movies about actors and videos and things like that, I've got to be really careful about the images I use and any sounds I use and any clips I use. The rule of thumb is three seconds. You can get away with three seconds under uh, quite arbitrary YouTube fair use provisions, but it has been useful. It's actually been a positive thing in some ways in that it makes me think my way around that limitation and to try to find more creative ways of telling what I'm trying to say about, say, Thelma Ritter's six Oscar nominations and the fact that she started her movie career at the age of 45 and all those kind of things. But finding ways to tell the story while tiptoeing through a minefield is uh, a nice challenge. It's something I really do enjoy doing, even though it does annoy and frustrate me when I get that little email a couple of hours after I upload and publish the YouTube video saying somebody has done a copyright strike against you. Most of the time it means that if for some obscure and unlikely reason my video goes viral, I can't monetize it and get advertising revenue from it and anything like that. I'm not getting many money at the moment. But if the channel does gain some ground and um, gain some prominence, there's a possibility of me getting a few bits of folding green from YouTube. And if you get a copyright hit against you, that's just not going to happen. 
the money, if there is any money involved, would go to the person who claims copyright on that five seconds you might have used from some obscure movie from the 1940s. It's just the nature of the way that things happen there, and they may well change in the future, but at the moment I've got to kind of work within that structure if I want to put the content that I enjoy making out to the public. Um, I believe there are other things like um, Daily Motion and Vimeo have uh, slightly less arduous rules, but they also don't have anywhere near the um, industry prominence that a platform like YouTube does. And I enjoy YouTube. For the most part, they've been supportive, and I've learned a lot from their Creator Academy tutorials. But, yeah, it can be difficult. But anyway, I should wrap it up there because it's getting towards the witching hour around here. And so it's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. And I want to thank you for listening. And thank you for the patience while I got back on my feet as far as the content's concerned and and the um, movies, talking about the movies and things like that. There'll be a Martian driving out in a week. There'll be another Paleo Cinema out in two weeks. So in the meantime, look after yourselves. Take care. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. See Roma if you can, because it's a good film. Uh, I'll let you know about the favourite after I watch it tomorrow morning. But look after yourselves and, and keep watching good and bad films and just enjoy what you're doing and live in the moment. So anyway, I'm going to end, of course, as usual, with the credits in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support the channel via Patreon at patreon.com slash paleocinema without the dash. So I will then leave you with the credits and I might put a bit of music afterwards as well. So take care of yourselves and I'll be back soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Arm and Our Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia our Casting Director, Chris our Camera Operator, Christopher our Gaffer, Miss Jane our Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy our Foley Artist, Alyssa our Location Scout, Mark our Second Unit Director, Paul our Special Makeup Effects Director, Tammy the Donut Wrangler, Tim our New York Unit Director, Rabbi Steve our Spiritual Advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan our Director of Monster Effects, Dylan our Goat Wrangler, Eric our Set Security Lead, Richard H our Set Photographer, Mark D our Extra, and David L our Extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast.